Welcome to episode 196 of the No Proscenium podcast, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, coming to you from the No Pro studio, a.k.a. my kitchen table in Los Angeles. This episode is brought to you by listeners like you, a whole bunch of listeners like you. More on that in a moment. Uh, This week on the show. Catherine Yu, our executive editor, she's in New York. She's been at Tribeca Immersive, uh, you know, pretty much the the entire time. Uh, you know, I mean, she goes and she she has a life, so it's not like she's there constantly. But there's so much coming out of the shop this week about what's going on at Tribeca Immersive because there's so many things going on at Tribeca Immersive. You can catch up with all of it at our Tribeca Immersive Hub on the website. Uh, just just a ton of interviews and reviews. Uh, lots of good stuff going on. Uh, we've got three interviews that she recorded in the out in the field, on the scene, there at Tribeca. Uh, that's coming to you this week. Kevin Cornish of Moth and Flame, who's going to be talking about second, the Second Civil War uh, project he's been working on. Uh, Brandon Padvin, who's the associate producer at MWN Immersive, uh, talking about war remains. And Columbia University's digital storytelling labs, Lance Weiler, talking about his latest project, Where There's Smoke. So three interviews this time out uh, in our Tribeca Immersive trip. Tick. We're going to get to the interview with Kevin in a minute. I'll set that up. But first, a couple of things of note. Thing number one, I am now uh, fully freelance, fully in the immersive world. So uh, there's big projects on the horizon uh, that we've actually got to go raise money for. Fun. Uh, and there's all sorts of stuff that I'll get into on the back end of the show. But uh, I wanted to make a note of thanking everyone who has uh, jumped in on the Patreon. Um, I want to I want to do something that's almost silly for me because I'm always having to hit everyone up and say like, hey, if you if you really want this show to continue, if you want No Pro to expand, if you want us to do this, we do need your support on the Patreon. And we're not looking for 25, 10, you know, $15, uh, plenty of people are jumping on that. And I, and I love you for it. I thank you really, really want to make this on the back of one and $5, uh, donations, particularly because I want to be able to direct your attention to other worthy projects, uh, and not be constantly trying to bite into your wallet and uh, a big worthy project right now. We had them on the show a few weeks ago. The Nest coming back, Scout Expedition Co. Uh, if you go to the nestshow.com, you'll be able to get links over to their Kickstarter. They've got uh, just a few days left to go here in the Kickstarter. Uh, let me take a look here. I have it up. Uh, five days left to go, and they're just uh, just a little over four thousand dollars shy of their goal. So. Uh, and they did that on the back of 188 backers. You know, there are more backers of No Persinium, uh, just in terms of sheer numbers, than there are sheer number backers for the Nest. And I don't don't expect everyone to like you know be able to get it across. But uh, if you've been backing the project, or if you're not, or e- even if you are like, oh hey, I don't have any money for it, just signal boost the Nest. It would really uh, mean a lot to uh, everyone out here 
to do that. So go check out thenestshow.com and uh, help us signal boost them as we get that cleared because uh, it's definitely possible. And if they had a few couple hundred more backers, I think they could clear that $4,000 goal without too much of a problem. All right. Speaking of financial things, uh, we have a new sustaining backer this time out uh, who's joining the crew. That would be uh, Samuel Mustry. Uh, Samuel, I owe you an email and we, we should have a call. Um, and then I want to read you the list of the people who jumped in uh, on this because I'm trying to keep better track and actually Patreon's great and they, they set you up with lists and like, here's, here's what you're supposed to do. So, uh, Justin Bolino, uh, Bolinino, I think I've said his name on the show before actually, but just in case I haven't, uh, Ryan Tavlin, Chris Solansky, NR, Jude Jagger, Brian Stein, all thank you so much for jumping in. Uh, you know, this has been our, uh, darkest hour and brightest moment all at the same time. Uh, and I'm really, uh, just so grateful that so many folks are, are jumping in right now where we stand on the Patreon as I try and get the computer to tell me we've got 233 patrons and it's a 1325 a month, which is not enough to clear every expense of living, uh, not by a long shot, but it is a good foundation and we're going to keep expanding. Okay, that's what's up on uh, on the Patreon. The sustaining backers, of course, now are Samuel Mustry, Jan Bedman, Lonnie Hanson, Ari Hurstan, Mark Balthazar, and Sam Kinkin. And I need to be having water nearby so I don't mess up everyone's names. Anyway, I get the chance to do that again at the end of the show. We've got a lot... For you today. So, first interview up, Catherine's sitting down with Kevin Cornish of Moth and Flame talking about Second Civil War. This is a piece where participants have the power to change the narrative of the VR film using a voice interface. They also go through an immersive theater one on one with a performer before and after the VR experience. Um, I believe our friend Jay Bushman also worked on this, one of the early backers of No Persinium. So, just so you know, the audio quality on this uh, was recorded in a cafeteria. It's just a little bit funky. And uh, it's about 12 minutes, 12 minutes and 30 seconds is how long the interview is. And the last two minutes of it uh, or so, uh, there's just this weird compression drop that happens. So again, apologies for the quality, but we definitely wanted to get this to you while uh, Tribeca was still running. And then uh, we'll be back after this one uh, and into the next setting up the next interview. Here we go. Hey, this is Kevin Cornish. So, Kevin, what brings you to Tribeca this year? So I have a project called The Second Civil War, and the idea is imagining what would happen if kind of the polarized times of today took kind of two steps too far and uh, resulted in kind of a, a violent conflict. So how did you first get started doing this project? What inspired you? I was inspired a few years ago when I was reading about the the chapter 10 uh, other than honorable discharges that were happening when the military was trying to downsize and they basically found a loophole to discharge um, soldiers with PTSD or traumatic brain injuries in a way that was cheaper for the military than going through medical discharges 
And the result was all these guys who lost their benefits who were just kind of left uh, hanging. And I just had this thought of, like, if you train somebody to go to war and then you mistreat them, that's not going to end well. And that was kind of the spur of the idea. So why did you choose to tell it using virtual reality? Well, so for the last four years, I've been almost working pretty much exclusively in virtual reality. Um, and it just, to do a cinematic uh, war experience, it's kind of the perfect medium. Yeah, so for me, the most important thing in storytelling is the connection to the characters. And so to accomplish that, um, voice activation was a big step. So giving an experience that was... I'm not so interested in things blowing up in that part of the a war experience. I'm more interested in who are the people on the ground and how are their lives impacted by everything that's happening around them. And... So in thinking about if you're going to be on the ground in a conflict zone, the most important thing is what are the relationships that you're building with the people on the ground? And doing that through conversation seemed like the most impactful way to do it. So to take a step back here, what happens during the experience is that you as the participant um, basically have three things that you can say Yeah, so the way it works is you're playing the role of a journalist, and when you go in, you, like you're, as a journalist would, you have kind of your scripted questions that uh, you would plan for, and then over the conversation, based on different topics that are more or less interesting to you, you can ask questions that are associated with that topic. So, for instance, if you're talking to somebody and they mention something about losing a family member and you want to ask more questions about, find out more about their emotional life, then there are questions related to kind of the emotional impact of the war. But if you're more interested in the politics of the war, then you can ask questions about the politics and then those will, that'll be the information that you get from the interview with that character. Yeah, so I think that the voice is a muscle, and there's something about when you're do when you're talking, you're doing something, and when you think about what's the difference between VR and just like watching a movie, it's that idea that you're not just watching something, you're doing something, and so your body and your mind remember it differently. And so with the voice, because you're actively like engaging in the way that you do in the real world, using your voice muscle, making the eye contact, the emotional connection that you develop with the characters is kind of unlike anything that we're used to experience in, in film. 
slight spoiler, but um, the immersive theater onboarding and offboarding, like those kind of bookends to these Yeah, that was one of the most exciting things about for me when I when we heard that we were accepted in tr- tr- when we heard that we were accepted into Tribeca. The f- one of the first things that we started working on was okay, we know there's going to be all this stuff in the VR headset, but how do we take the experience outside of the headset and how do we do it in a way that's really connected to the story and isn't just like building a set for the sake of having a set? So what we decided to do was take the first scene of the experience out of the headset and make it happen with a live actor. And what that meant was the inciting incident for the entire story is is set up during a one-on-one uh, one-on-one interaction with the actor. So the way that it works is you uh, are playing the role of a journalist and you've been given a visa to get into this conflict zone in this insurgent hot zone in, in Baltimore. But before you can do that, you have to get your visa approved by uh, a local U.S. Army officer. So that first scene is with that officer, and when you get there, you're told that that visa is no longer valid, and I'll avoid the spoiler, but if you agree to make a deal, then there's a possibility, if you navigate that scene correctly, that you can then get into the hot zone even though the visa's expired. Um, so one thing that I thought was a really nice design touch was, once I was in the hot zone, uh, I ran into that safer former again, so could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, we wanted to have the that kind of continuity of um, in, inside the world, inside the headset and outside the headset. And um, do we have an incredible uh, cast of immersive actors? Um, and so uh, Ava Scott was one that we worked with who, um, when I met her in the audition, she was like so great as a performer for the live experience, but then also to put her inside of the experience. So then you're getting follow-up calls from that same character seemed like a really great way to bridge the two. Could you talk a little bit about the technological aspect? I noticed that the video in the piece is just super, super crisp and that's unusual for a lot of the yeah, so the visual quality is something that I've been really obsessed with from the beginning of working in the medium. Um, I remember the first uh, kind of GoPro cameras that, they were, that were being used were kind of these like not very good lenses and thinking about if the dream of virtual reality is being able to step inside of a movie, it should be shot and feel... It should be shot with the kind of glass that you would use shooting a movie. So the capturing it in a really high fidelity way is really important, but really it's HP supported the project and gave us the new HP reverb headset, which is 2k per eye, which is a complete game changer in terms of pixel density and clarity. And there were, there were times when I would be looking at shots in the headset. And these were shots on location in Baltimore that I, I remember being in that location and it being more clear in the headset than it was when I was looking at it in real life because of the way the camera can cut through light pollution. That's amazing. Um, to follow on that, why did you choose Baltimore as the setting for the story? Well, it was important for the story that it wasn't set in the South because 
a modern war would not be a north versus south war and also it's not uh the thing that connects the the uh the groups is generally disenfranchisement so across the political spectrum there there are groups that feel like the government has turned their back on them um and baltimore has a history of being kind of along that border of the mason dixon line and has a very deep rich civil war history and um also just kind of the home of francis scott key and so that was kind of where it, it uh, originally kind of stemmed from and then i had worked on a project um with a woman who'd came out of Balt- baltimore foster care and had kind of started to get familiar with the city and uh it seemed like uh a good location for it Yeah, the thing that's amazing about VR is that because it's um because it's in game engine because you're you're building uh you can you can build and prototype really fast. And so the best advice is just make something and learn from it and then make the next thing and just make as many things as possible because every time you do something else there's uh an iteration process and the learning just happens so fast. Awesome. So what are your future plans for Second Civil War? So there's a couple possibilities that we're discussing of bringing it to Los Angeles for the summer. Uh, and that's some, that's really exciting because of the, the idea that letting it, letting it have a run so people can experience it, people can tell friends about it, people can then have their friends go see it and then have a discussion afterwards film festival is really great but it's such a a select group of people that see it in in kind of this like condensed one week to really get it so it's open to the public and really do something that gives the an opportunity for the immersive theater community to see it and see kind of the possibilities of the technology and the possibilities of what can be done when you start merging live actors with uh, the storytelling that can happen inside of the headset. Awesome. So where can people keep up with you? So there's a Twitter account that is um, the Twitter account of the journalist that is the character that you play inside the experience. And that Twitter account is at I am second civil war. And that's two ND civil war. Um, and that part of it is really important because we wanted this whole idea of extending the experience outside of the headset, bringing the life of the world onto social media and letting it, letting the story play out there as well with kind of pictures that you as a journalist have taken, um, different photography, like the notorious, uh, McDonald's bombing or, the tent cities outside of Walmart. Those can all be seen on the Twitter account. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for speaking to me today. Thank you. All right. 
let's get into the next interview. Uh, program note on this one, it was recorded on the roof of Spring Studios. So again, kind of an active audio environment. Um, that's what you should know. Uh, this next interview is about 19 minutes and 20 seconds long, uh, just to give you a sense of uh, where we are in things. Uh, we're talking with Brandon Padveen, who is the associate producer at MWM Immersive, about War Remains. Uh, he discusses working with Dan Carlin of Hardcore History to create this immersive memory and designing the freewarming VR experience, which includes a large set, realistic props, wind effects, rumbling floors, and more. Catherine's review of War Remains is available on the site. All right, let's dive into this and then when we return the interview with Lance Weiler this is Catherine Yu with No Persinium New York and I am reporting from the Tribeca Film Festival virtual arcade although technically I'm not uh, in the arcade right now I'm actually on the roof of Spring Studios with our guest Hey, my name is Brandon Padme, and I'm one of the producers on War Remains. So, for people who aren't familiar with the project, what is War Remains? Sure. So, War Remains is a virtual reality experience that uses uh, wireless VR headsets on a large physical stage. It's presented and created by Dan Carlin, who's an extraordinary podcaster. Uh, he does deep, extensive dives into military history for a large and very dedicated audience. So having, uh, as someone maybe who doesn't get a chance to go to the experience, um, like kind of logistically, what's it all about? What does it mean to be free roam in this context? Yeah, so if you can imagine, I think uh, it's uh, about a 25 by 25 foot stage. It almost looks like something you'd see in a uh, laser tag exhibit. Um, kind of a big M-shaped maze sort of thing. And if you imagine, um, it's highly set design. So there's walls that are covered in all sorts of different textures. There's sorts of, you know, uh, uh, are, you know arms uh, that are meant to feel realistic hanging all over the place. They represent dead bodies. There's wooden floor panels and uh, duck boards and floor shakers and all sorts of different fabrics all over the place. So it's this very tactile environment. But if you were to just look at it, it's just a gray almost colorless world but when you put the VR headset on all of a sudden the whole thing comes to the whole thing comes to life so what is maybe just a blank wall that you can't even reach all of a sudden becomes this huge um, hellscape that we like to say of World War One. if I haven't mentioned uh, War Remains is a World War One deep dive it's really a chance to walk through the set to feel hear experience maybe a little taste of what it would have been like to be at the Battle of Passion Game so apropos of right now, there's a plane literally flying overhead. Um, so yeah, it seems like the sound design is really, really important to this experience. Sound design is essential. Uh, from the very beginning, we've basically said this is as much an audio experience as it is a visual and tactile one. Um, that's why we went to you know industry leaders like Skywalker Sound, who handled all of the audio. They handled all of the shaking rumble haptics that feed directly into the audio. Um, they use the Wise engine um, to power a lot of their audio. And yeah, I mean, Dan Carlin, he is a podcaster. He really, he gets into the booth um, and, you know, something like 35 hours, he'll talk about World War One, and it's just him and a microphone. And his process and his style really enables you to imagine this whole world, even if it's just in your mind. And so for us, ma making sure that the audio 
was essential or was perfect was an essential uh, an essential thing for us. Dan always says, you know, try to imagine what it would been like to be there for an artillery barrage in World War One. It's not really the kind of thing that will ever happen again because artillery was sort of new and it took so many guns to accomplish what we accomplish now with modern technology with less uh, with less artillery. So um, trying to imagine what something like that was um, is nearly impossible. And so that's what Skywalker came in to handle. Um, and you know, one thing that was so important for us is often in movies and video games, things sound more like what we imagine they might sound like as opposed to what they really sounded like. And that's something that was super important to Dan to make sure that we weren't phoning anything in with kind of traditional ideas of what guns and bombs sound like, but that we were really exploring what has, you know, we wanted to be perfectly accurate. So. Uh, yeah, audio is a major, major part of this experience. So, in addition to the audio, um, there's this big set that the participant can walk around in. Um, so, what was the decision around having it kind of be like this traversal, like this path that you wanted people to take? So, uh, the experience is called War Remains. Dan Carlin presents an immersive memory. It's meant to be this idea that you're kind of stepping into this collective memory. So if we wanted you to go into something, um, it didn't quite make sense, at least for the primary, you know, the first pass of the experience, that you were just going to be sitting in a chair. That you were just going to be sitting in a chair. We wanted you to really go on a bit of an adventure. Um, and so the set itself went through a number of different iterations. There's always questions. There's always more that you could add. There's always more that you can do. We think we landed on a pretty solid... Um, amount of haptics and, and tactile pieces of the set. Um, and so we went to a group um, out of Dallas that where most of the experience was constructed by built, uh, called Built by Bender. Bender handles all sorts of crazy installations and art pieces like this. And so re they really became the perfect partner. Um, and one of our questions is we said, okay, we're going to have a set, at least that you're going to walk through, but how detailed should the set be? And there's a question of, well, are people even going to touch it? You know, if we cover the walls in fake mud, if we put, you know, old-style duckboards on the floor, if we leave, you know, fake body parts and fabrics all over the place, like I said, it's pretty intense. Uh, but if we have all these things, are people even going to interact with them? Um, and what we're finding is they absolutely do, um, in part because, you know, if you're an expert in VR, you're sort of used to being in a headset, but we, um, especially at our company, um, MWM Immersive, we're really trying to grow the VR market by doing things like this and working with people like Dan Carlin. So we have a lot of new VR users into the space. And what's really helpful for them is that they can sort of reach out and grab something to sort of make themselves feel, uh, you know, like they're not going to topple over necessarily. And, um, what they find is they reach out maybe expecting sort of a safe handrail and their hand comes right into, you know, a body or uh, a big lump of dirt. Um, so people really, uh, and it's really exciting to see that people are having this very tactile experience. They've got their hands all over the set. Um, so at least I'm really glad that we decided to move forward with um, going that deep on how much detail we have on the set. I and mean, I should say, it's all a lot of time was spent making sure that it's all perfectly one-to-one. -one. It doesn't really work. If some things match up right where you'd think they would be, but then on this other thing, you reach out looking for a rope. Oh, and the rope's three inches to the right. Um, we, uh, I'm proud to say, don't have any issues like that. The set is having a pretty one-to-one -one matchup, and that's so important for really selling the illusion that you're somewhere else. Could you talk a little bit about how the haptics and wind effects also come into play? Definitely. So, um, 
one of actually the first components of the experience that came up in the creative development was that you would go on a hot air balloon ride. Um, this was the war uh, where it was the first time that a lot of um, you know industrialization was taking people up into the sky. And we thought, well, that's a pretty wild experience to sell of World War One. So in the balloon, in particular. Um, you know, wind will sell it, visuals will sell it, um, and even in that case, the balloon actually rocks back and forth with your weight. Um, but we thought, okay, what's what's the final uh, cherry on top? And so it became wind fans, um, and those are tricky to get right it, with VR and with haptics, especially with things like fans. Um, there's a fine line between okay, well, there's a fan right there, or you just completely forget that there's a fan, you know, only a couple inches from you. Um, and so it's about placing things right. It's about making sure that some of the fans are moving in just the right way while other fans are standing still. And we really spent a lot of time really just standing in a balloon basket, being blown on by fans, saying, okay, that feels real. How do we make sure that it feels real? Um, fans are actually used all throughout the experience, though, not just in the balloon basket. Um, there are certain parts of the experience where you feel like you're inside, so we don't use fans. Uh, but then there are parts of the experience where you go outside and the difference between being in what at least feels like an uh, inside environment and then you walk through a doorway and you're in the VR environment, you, you're seeing that you're outside, but then you're feeling fans. That does something in what we like to call the lizard brain. That's something that that's a term that Dan uses a lot. He picked it up from another VR artist. The lizard brain is basically the idea that, okay, you walked into a uh, you walked into an exhibit, you know deep inside your mind that this isn't real, it's, it's a set. Um, but things like the fans, touching, all those different haptics sell the lizard brain, where somewhere, something deep inside of you sort of forgets that it's real for a moment. Uh, the fans, especially, are, are a huge component of that. Um, and I think I mentioned floor shakers. Um, that was something that Skywalker really wanted to do, and we very much wanted to support them in that. Um, again, how do you recreate an artillery strike? And when a big bomb goes off of you and you feel those floors rumbling under you, um, that really sells it. Um, it's also kind of neat when you're standing outside the experience. The whole thing is wrapped in a big black curtain, so you can't really see what's inside. We want to build the mystery. All that you really detect is sort of you hear these faint sort of roars and rumbles coming off of it. That's the sound of the floor shakers working. Uh, we think as far as, you know, one kind of interesting, dangerous sounding thing on the outside, the floor shakers are pretty cool. One thing that I also noticed in addition to feeling the floor rumbling and the wind on my face was uh, Dan Carlin's voice is basically in your head the whole time. And I found myself at least um, very emotionally connected to that voice. And it was almost like um, he was like hinting how I should feel about something and kind of really pulling me along the story. So was that the intent? So, well, I'll first say I'm a, a gigantic fan of Dan Carlin. I think obviously his his narration is unbelievable. The uh, the quality of that voice is, I think, something really, really rare, really unique. Um, so it's interesting that you feel that way. And this was something that Dan spent a lot of time working with us and talking about. Is that he wanted you to have certain moments where he's not there. Um, and it's a actually, I'd say Dan is in the experience less than he is in the experience. We sort of carefully said, okay, well, this is a point say at the beginning or at one point in the middle where, okay, we're going to have Dan come in. He's going to sort of establish some context for you. Um, but then there are times where no Dan talking. We just really, because if you were actually on this battlefield, well, you wouldn't hear Dan Carlin's voice. You would just hear what the battlefield sounded like. Um, so that was something that Dan was very adamant about, that 
um, that his voice was being used sporadically and very specifically, and that we didn't just have wall-to-wall Dan Carlin talking. Now, as for his intention, um, Dan always says, I don't have a story to tell, I have an experience to share. Um, and what I think he means by that um, is he, Dan is not trying to tell you necessarily war is bad, we should never have war, whatever his personal opinions are. Um, Dan is, if anything, and I think this is very much um, how he runs his podcast, um, is not necessarily trying to share his opinions of history. He's sort of just telling you the facts, trying to put you there as best as he can, and letting you come to your own conclusion. Um, And so I think Dan's narration here is a little bit more about, especially for those who maybe don't know the podcast or don't know as much about World War I, setting the stage for you. Um, and then, but then sort of pushing you, the viewer, and letting you have your own experience and tell your own story and come to your own conclusions about what this war meant, um, and especially about its continuing impact, what that maybe means. So to build on what you just said, um, what have people's reactions been like? I'm sure there's a range given how heavy the subject matter is. There is a range, and, um, and I'll start by saying we are all so humbled um, by what the reactions have been. We, um, we have a guest book, and we invite our guests who are so inclined to leave us a note. People have written um, such heartbreaking things, um, such inspiring and moving things about what they think VR can be. And some people talk about, wow, you know, their, their grandparents and their great-grandparents were on these battlefields, and, um, you know, nothing can ever recreate what the reality was. But we say, you know, maybe this can be just a little, a little taste um, and maybe that taste is a little farther than really any media has been able to take you. And so for us to think like, wow, people were able to connect a little more closely with what their grandparents or what this whole generation of people did, that, that is just uh, totally striking. Um, and so beyond that, you know, we have some people who um, can't make it to the full experience. Um, and we're very respectful and understanding of that. Um, they come out, we're very pleased. They always say, you know, wow, this was, this was an amazing thing. I just... I can't stand another minute of this. And, and so, you know, we tell them before, hey, you know, we, we always have our eyes on you. If you need to come out, you put your hand up and we, we get right there. It's very important that um, if people are having a tough time, we get them out of the headset right away. We don't want to have them keep experiencing this, you know. Um, and that's sort of the goal. It, it, this is a pretty traumatic event we want to create as um, not, not shocking for no reason, but at least, you know, a really earnest, truthful representation of what happened. Um, but then really on the other side, um, you know, Dan says, hey, we, we like haunted houses, right? We like scary movies. And so I think, um, you know, not to be disrespectful at all, I, I think there's a degree of sort of thrill, you know, the idea that, well, okay, we're here, we're safe, nothing's really going to happen to you, but you can kind of just taste what it might have been like. And maybe that's, that's a sort of thrilling thing. I mean, Dan even talks about there were some uh, real soldiers who in a strange kind of way um, enjoyed them, um, thought it made them them manly and strong Um, and so we we definitely have some people who are just blown away you know you'll have people in the balloon ride just going wow you know Um, and again it's something of VR is a really special medium we're all I mean movies can really take you away you know being in a dark room watching a movie theater is a really special experience but VR is something kind of wholly its own beast um, and so I think you have people who, uh, you know, it's almost like I said to them, uh, you know, aliens are real. You're just like, what? Impossible. You know, and here you are, and you're kind of having this impossible 
experience of, of future technology. And so you definitely have people who are kind of on that haunted house, thrill ride sort of experience. Um, and it's been a whole range. You know, we've had people who, who make it through the other side and the headset comes off. I'm normally the one who greets them on the other side. And I've had some moments where it's just people, just tears pouring off of their face. Like, you know, hey, I, I got to come see this at a film festival. I got to experience this thing. Real people went through this. So that's something that Dan invites you in the beginning to really reflect on. This is a simulation of something that real people, only a hundred years ago, they're not terribly different from us. Um, they actually went out there and did these things, and I think um, that's one of the more moving reactions that I've seen. Is VR is an empathy machine. It's something that a lot of us folks who work in VR say about it, um, and that is a powerful thing to have worked on something, you know, created a piece of content, and have people come out the other side and really have experienced something deep inside of themselves. Um, yeah, so reac reactions are. are, are really really positive and we're, we're just so thankful to you know the Dan fans and the VR fans and the history folks and really just anybody who just wants to try something new that people are coming out and uh, you know we like maybe uh, enjoy isn't quite the, quite the right word because we're not trying to make an enjoyable experience necessarily but that they've had a meaningful experience is a very special thing to us and we really appreciate those responses and for people who don't have the chance to see it at Tribeca uh, I hear it's going to tour Yes. Um, so our company, uh, MWM Immersive, we're going to be taking the experience uh, for a summer run in Austin. Um, and we haven't announced any plans after for what's going to happen after Austin, but we are working on it. We're having some really exciting conversations with people. Um, and we're, really, we're really excited to uh, announce some more plans. Awesome. So for anyone who's looking to get into the VR space, maybe looks at something like this and thinks, that's amazing, I could never make that. Um, do you have any advice to share? Oh, that is a great question. Well, one thing that, you know, and who knows, maybe this is just my own opinion about uh, working in VR. I think a lot of people work in virtual reality, specifically. Now, my personal opinion is, you know, and this is very much, I think, the, uh, the Madison Wells, the MWM attitude. Um, you know, we like to say we are story-driven. I think um, a creator should be a creator and be read and you know just be passionate about creating and obviously we're gonna all find our certain niche, uh, niches um, I think it's good to be um, fully involved in what can be created and to constantly be thinking oh you know maybe this is an idea for a movie maybe this is an idea for a VR piece and just um, some things fit into VR very well Dan Carlin was a very natural fit um, some things aren't going to be a good fit for VR. Some things aren't going to be a good fit for uh, movies. You know, case in point, Dan said, yeah, I didn't feel like TV was really the right space because I really wanted to put people people there. Um, I think that um, playing lots of VR content, watching lots of VR content um, is a great way to start. What I think is kind of fun about um, VR is, you know, when you're making film, you know, when you're kind of in the shower, or you're walking around, you're sort of, you know, in the car, you're kind of creating, you create um, in a box. And that's one of the wonderful things about film is you really have so much control. Um, you know, and this is uh, this is something, and this is really, this is an answer I'd love to hear from our director, Brandon Oldenburg. He's a wonderful, wonderful animation creator. But VR can sort of be, be created um, in your living room, you know, you can sort of imagine as if back when you were five, you're just kind of running around and really use your whole space to imagine 
what an experience might be like. Um, and so VR for other VR creators, I, I definitely say, hey, this is a really powerful, really thrilling medium to be in. Um, definitely just, just keep going. Find those things that you're really, really passionate about making. It's going to be hard. Uh, but if you love it, you know, yeah, I, I believe that there's a way to get pretty much any piece of content done. Case in point. So War Remains uh, at Tribeca through May 4th, and then touring Austin and perhaps to a city near you. Thank you so much, Brandon. Thanks so much for having me. All right, we're in the home stretch now. Our next interview, Catherine is talking with immersive creator and director of the Columbia University Digital Storytelling Lab, Lance Weiler, about his latest project, Where There's Smoke. Uh, this is a work, uh, is it an ex- this work is an immersive experience for four people exploring Lance's relationship with his father, a former volunteer firefighter and hobbyist fire photographer, uh, his father's battle with cancer, and two mysterious fires that happened during Lance's childhood. Uh, Lance calls this a, um, a non-linear documentary uh, and an immersive theater piece without performers and an escape room without any escape. What? All right, let's get into the interview. All right, this is Catherine Yu with No Proscenium New York, and today I'm here with... Lance Weiler. Uh, so Lance has a project here at the Tribeca Film Festival this year. So Lance, you've been a filmmaker, immersive interactive creator for a while. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into this? Sure. Um, I started off as a filmmaker. So for over 20 years, I've been working in film and television and games and doing installations. Um, and I think back with the first film that I ever made, which was called The Last Broadcast, started to experiment with this idea of what later I would come to realize was called alternate reality games and uh, we wove that into some of the work that we did with that and then in a subsequent uh, feature film which was called Head Trauma started to experiment more with gaming in it and also live performance and then uh, after that and subsequently in 2011 uh, did a project that was called Pandemic. Uh, Pandemic uh, was at the Sundance Film Festival that year and it had people from all over the world kind of scouring and looking for uh, these 50 golden objects that have been hidden in Park City that were connected to this very strange narrative that was about a, an outbreak of a sleep virus. Um, and so that ran in the New Frontier section, and participants worked for 120 hours to start that, uh, you know, to stop the spread of a pandemic. And then in um, a few years after that, in 2013, I collaborated with David Cronenberg and the the CFC and uh, TIFF on a project that was called Body Mind Change, which had people uh, basically educating an AI uh, around emotional intelligence, uh, had full-on installations, made use of uh, a variety of different technologies, and was kind of set in David Cronenberg's world. And um, around that time, I started the Digital Storytelling Lab at Columbia University, where I'm also an associate professor in practice at the School of the Arts, where I teach in film and theater. And uh, at the lab, we've done a number of prototypes over the last few years, uh, 
project called Sherlock Holmes and the Internet of Things, which grew to about 2,600 collaborators in 60 countries, 180 self-organized events around the world, and then most recently Frankenstein AI, which we had at Sundance in 2018 and also at ITFA, um, and that took on the form as an immersive uh, theater piece uh, that actually involved dance and performance, machine learning, choreography with Brandon Powers, and also um, uh, did some really interesting visualization with the folks from CLIP, and, uh, and uh, that then later, last November, went to ITFA in Amsterdam and became an immersive dinner party. Uh, where you would sit down with a group of strangers and you'd put a little earpiece into your ear and the AI would interact with you in an attempt to understand what it means to be human. Which then brings us up to most recently Where There's Smoke, which is here at the Tribeca immersive section of the festival. Awesome. So what is Where There's Smoke? Can you explain it? Sure. Where There's Smoke is probably the most vulnerable and personal project I've ever made. Uh, It's been probably in the works for over 17 years and mainly that was just me gaining the courage to be able to do it. Um, It's a project that kind of explores life and memory and loss. Um, I collaborated with my dad on it up until his death last year. Uh, He died from stage 4 colon cancer and the piece really kind of explores uh, our relationship um, and kind of looks at it through a lens that has a bit of a mystery to it mixed with some things that are dealing with um, end of life, uh, but then also, you know, a sense of identity, I guess you could say, is within it too. So it's a, the way I've explained it in the past is I've kind of said that it's a documentary that's non-linear. It's an immersive theater piece that has no performers, and it's an escape room that really has no escape. So um, I think in, in that sense, it's, it's really exploring form uh, in a way that I've been fascinated by. Uh, it uses calm technology, so it has no wearables or, or headsets, or it's not VR, AR. It's, it's very much you're in it, and it's really about human connection at the core, which is something that I'm really kind of fascinated about in work. I feel like in, in the world that we live in, things have been so... People are so enamored by technology, but it becomes more and more, I think it's more and more valuable to be able to connect with another human being, especially in the, in the times that we live. And so the piece really kind of explores that through this idea of a series of enchanted objects. You know, so objects hold um, memories, and those memories kind of change over time. They're subjective, and, and I guess in a sense the piece is really kind of exploring that. And uh, having just gone through it, um, maybe we can break down some of the three aspects that you just spoke about. So what do you mean by non-linear documentary? Uh, In terms of non-linear documentary, at the the center of the piece, there's like nine fragments. And uh, I wanted to play with an aesthetic that was kind of looking at this notion of grief is non-linear. It comes at all different times. You know, you might hear a song... Uh, and and you well up, or you you might smell something, or you might think, oh, I wish I could just, oh, something just happened, and I can't wait to tell. Oh, I can't anymore, right? And it just comes. It's like in waves, and uh, and so I, I wanted to kind of play with that mechanic, and I thought it would be interesting to explore maybe nine different fragments 
but through your interactions in the experience, you're unlocking them, right? But you unlock them in all different orders, and you might not unlock all of them. And it's really uh, kind of predicated on this idea that when somebody is terminal, you immediately want an answer. You want things to be like, I, I know, I can figure it out. Here's the answer. What do we need to do? Let's heal this person. But the reality is it becomes just more and more questions. And those questions, eventually, you just have to let go. And so you can't, you can't, um, you can't see it all. You can't get the answers. It doesn't have a clean ending. And I thought that there was something that was interesting in that. And then also, in a sense, I guess, kind of almost like a dream logic where you're kind of, you're moving through these, these stories, um, but the order of them is always kind of different. And you might, it, it makes people think different things that, uh, you know, dependent upon how they go through it. So, um, so in that sense, it, it is very nonlinear. So just speaking from the experience I had, um, you know, an hour ago, uh, my group began with the fragment where you were really questioning the cause of a fire in your childhood home. And from what you've just said, it doesn't seem like every group unlocks that fragment. Yeah, some might never unlock anything about fire, and then they think that the room that they're in is a metaphor for cancer. So it's, it's very, um, it kind of explores that. It, it, it plays with this. We have such a convention for a three-act structure and for things to have a tight kind of resolution. But, man, life doesn't have a tight resolution. The only thing that we have in common is that we're all going to die, right? And how that happens and what we choose to resolve before that happens or what we choose to tell those who we love before they die, that's, that's, uh, that's so open-ended, you know? And I think, um, I think in that respect, it's something that... I guess in, in terms of the work, you know, when I think about it... it you know, I feel like I'm, I'm exploring terrain that is very uh, challenging and vulnerable. You know, my father died less than a year ago, and I guess in some ways I process that, process that through creating work. Um, and I think that there's an aspect of, um, I feel like all the time I just have more and more questions about it. So, yeah, so as I, as I reflect on it, it felt like the nonlinear aspect of it was a really nice vehicle for that. So um, building off your escape room without puzzles aspect, could you talk about how people are actually unlocking the fragments through the magical objects? Sure. Um, well, you, if you just imagine you kind of push open a door and you find yourself in a burned-out hallway and you're, you have like a map, and you have these flashlights, and you have an envelope that says not to open until the end of the experience. And you come into the room, and you kind of follow that map, and things are pretty laid out. It's not really about you having to work terribly hard to find the objects. It's not like an escape room where you're dismantling things and, and, and uh, you know, having to, to find all the elements that are below the surface, we kind of put the things out in regular view because it's more about, like, once you find them, it's kind of bringing them into the space, and it's really about kind of the, the, uh, the interaction in and around that table and doing so with there's a number of symbols that represent body parts, and you're kind of trying to find the logic of, like, okay, why does this camera, does it go with a heart, does it go with a hand, does it go with an ear? Does it go with a brain? 
does this rotary phone, where does that go? Maybe it goes with the ear, maybe the, the camera is the heart, maybe the camera is the hand, and it's really allowing the, the group to kind of collectively determine what they think it should be. And then as you move through it and you place down combinations, a fragment will unlock. And uh, dependent upon that combination that you do, you may see something about the fires that devastated our family. You may see something about my father's diagnosis in terms of cancer. You may hear a story about his upbringing. You may hear a story about our, uh, you know, something about our family. Uh, but it comes each time that you kind of inter interlock, uh, you know, you unlock by placing these objects in different combinations. And then as you go, the objects start to disappear. You can't use them anymore. And at the same time, there's a sequence of slides that are kind of progressing and telling a story of loss. Yeah, I thought that that was really powerful because um, in some of the clips you talk about your father being this amateur photographer and finding all of the slides um, hidden away in the house. And at the same time, you know, the people who are participating are in this set and there's this projector that just kind of comes to life and responds to what you're doing. So um, how did that design decision come about? I think that there was something I'm really fascinated. I think a lot of the work that's out in the immersive space is really overwrought with um, trying, it's afraid that somebody's going to break it. You know, it's afraid that it won't be done properly. It's afraid that, you know, it's afraid to leave room for ex true exploration by the participants. And when I say exploration, I mean like something that's truly immersive, something where a part of you is actually there. It's not just like I need to find these things and you're not really sure. You have something where you're trying to, uh, you're trying to break through, uh, you're trying to beat a clock or you're trying, and I'm not, I'm not, by all means, I love escape rooms. I'm not trying to knock that. I'm just saying that this is something that's like kind of an emotional escape room. It's something that's different. It's, it's kind of weaving narrative into that at the same time. And, and it's using elements of the form of an escape room, but trying to subvert it, I guess, in a sense, and trying to look at it and say, well, what if narrative really was a part of that? And what if it wasn't solely about a very clear goal or a very completist kind of task-driven thing? Because I feel like the metaphor, too, around the, the table that's the interface to my father feels as though there's, there's this element of, you know, as you go and you're, you're, you're kind of, you know, taking the time to go through, it's almost like it, become a, it becomes a task in certain respects. And I felt like when my father was dying that we had all these tasks to keep him alive but that was getting in the way of the dignity of his death you know and so I think there's a thought process that's very layered within the piece that's basically saying okay how can we narrativize this what's the aesthetic that we're actually designing for what might somebody be thinking feeling and doing within this piece and how can it be not just you know my own story, but a story that leaves room for others to lay their stories across it too. And, um, and so I think there was very conscious kind of design around that and a lot of time spent thinking about what are the ways in which people can actually become more connected to each other within the experience and feel like they go on a journey, you know, as opposed to um, maybe in some ways when you're in certain 
virtual reality or augmented reality experiences, you're kind of exploring space, but you're, you're always at an arm's distance. Even if you're haptically holding it, um, you still know that there's, um, um, you know, like there's, uh, the interface is very apparent. You know what I mean? Like it's hard to get past the fact that like, okay, these are gloves that I'm wearing. This is a headset that I have on. And so I was trying to get it to like, the idea that these are physical artifacts that live in the world and they can do enchanted things almost, you know. So when I sit or we listen to shows, people gasp when it's when, when it comes to life. You know, there's an audible, like, reaction from groups of people um, and there's kind of almost a magical quality to it. Um, so I, I think, you know, how, as an as a experienced designer, I'm always trying to figure out how can I how can I create those moments that are uh, a shared discovery, but then also maybe moments of a personal reflection within it too? So you've got groups of four people at a time. They're standing in front of this table interface. They're interacting with these magical objects. How many of them uh, try to solve some sort of puzzle that they've imagined or look for a correct solution when there really isn't one? Uh, I think that everybody kind of starts with that, you know, um, and then I think as they go forward, they, uh, they have a variety of different methods they use, and they, they talk and deliberate on what they think the meaning is, and they lay the meaning over it. Um, and the objects do hold very significant meaning, but you might not unlock all the meaning for the objects. Um, which is interesting because I think that was very much like what it was like when I was actually, uh, you know, collaborating with my father on the project because he was a collaborator on the project, and, you know, and so I think that there was an element of that where I always felt like I kind of would leave with a lot more questions. Nothing was ever really, <laughs> nothing was ever really as simple as a yes or a no, you know. It was it was really interesting in that respect, but um, I think to your to your question, um, uh, people kind of interpret it to their own. It depends on the dynamic of the group that's in there, you know. Um, but I think that that's one of the that's by design, you know, to try to to try to allow some of that meaning to come over it. One thing that I didn't realize until towards the end was the four objects that I'd been interacting with are from your personal history. Like, those are yours, right? Mm -hmm. Why, I guess, the the decision to trust a bunch of strangers with your real-life stuff? I mean, (laughs) how did that come about? Well, I think it came about because the set is really consists of these things that did survive a fire from my youth, um, as much as, as I could salvage from it which just still happened to be in and around the, the house, my parents' house. And uh, I think there's a power in realizing, in the end, the significance of these objects. And uh, it just felt like what made it more real is that they are real. I mean, granted, they're real physical objects, but the, the emotional connection is what made them more powerful, I felt. and. Um, in the end, they're kind of just objects in some ways, but it's the significance that I've given to them. Um, so I'm, 
I, I guess in some ways I'm emotionally attached to them, but in other ways I'm not, and I know the power of somebody holding that and, and the tactile nature of it and then realizing the, the reveal of, of what it what it actually is, you know, like, and, and its significance within the piece. So for me, I, I think that those are elements that probably come from my love of storytelling and having crafted many films and cinematic experiences and thinking about like the arc of somebody going through this and thinking about like well what's a powerful moment if you're not going to have a moment that's ultimately um, a resolve you know what I mean like in the way that maybe you think you'll find yourself with like some other type of discovery and maybe that discovery is something unexpected one other thing that really struck me um, as I look back on my experience is how much it reminded me of these narratively driven video games where the objects in the games like Gone Home or Firewatch have a lot of power and mystery. So how has game design influenced your work? Well, there's definitely, uh, you know, like uh, I worked with Nick Fortuno on, on some of the stuff in and around uh, what we did for the mechanic. Um, and I think from game design, you know, have really, at the university we do this too, but have really been embraced this idea of mechanics, dynamics, and aesthetics, and use that as kind of a way not only to analyze games, uh, but also as a way to design these types of experiences, and kind of borrowing from that and taking the element of the aesthetic, and really kind of thinking about that. Um, you know, what do we want to leave somebody feeling you know, and, and really, really trying to, to, to build from there, uh, because I think it is narratively driven, it's more narratively driven than it is game driven, um, but it's, it's kind of in this combination, and then the other part I really enjoy about it as we sit in this room of all these emotional artifacts that came from these different people, is the layer of the participant within it, in, a, in, in what I feel is a real meaningful way, not just, uh, you know, they go through a, a journey themselves uh, at the same time. You know, people are walking into this after visualizing and saving something from their own, you know, quote-unquote fire. People walk into the room and it subconsciously or consciously makes them think about what, why they, you know, why they saved what they did, what does that mean to them, and, and the potential of what if it was all gone, you know, and, and I think that's... That's pretty powerful in terms of, uh, you know, an arc. So I think from the perspective as the reference to Gone Home or Firewatch, I, I think in those walking simulators, which is meant to be a dig at those games, you know, is there's a, there's a, there's a really, there's a kind of an interesting quality. I guess in some ways that is kind of in this, you know, um, but I think it's, uh, I would say it's kind of, they're borrowing in some ways from cinema, as I'm coming back the other way and borrowing lightly from some of the stuff that's within, you know, you find within games. Uh, and to go back to your statement way at the beginning, uh, that you're calling this also an immersive theater experience without actors. Mm -hmm. So, and yet I feel like you're very present in the experience and your parents are very present in the experience. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, well, for this particular run and, and for what I'm doing here, you know, like I kind of bookend the piece, but not for every show, you know. Um, but so I do have a presence and I bring people into it. And even when I'm not here, my voice brings people into it. Um, 
so the uh, the elements of my my parents are kind of woven in, and that's where it's almost kind of like serial-like, or it's kind of almost like audio or podcast-like, and and it's a lot of uh, archival slides. You know, my dad was a volunteer firefighter and amateur scene fire photographer as well, and you know, I have thousands and thousands and thousands of slides in various states of burning, so I have a lot of like strong kind of archival elements. Um, so my my family kind of weaves into it through those archival elements as well as uh, some conversations that I had leading up to my dad's death where he uh, agreed to uh, interviews and I could ask him anything. And so that then led to us collaborating around the project, uh, you know, where he would talk to me about what we were planning and he was very excited about it coming to New York this spring. Um, and so he, he was very involved uh, in, in, in it in that way. So, so I guess you have the layer of, from a creation side, you know, then you have the archival elements, and then you have my parents you know, as voices within it too. Um, but uh, in terms of the performers, I guess when I was thinking about that with the immersive theater part, I was thinking about this really interesting participatory Kind of aspect of it, you know, where all of a sudden you're you're interacting with somebody that you don't know, a stranger, and you're sharing these things and the stories that you each tell each other have a performative quality to them too, and um, and then all of a sudden artifacts start to emerge from the participants, which have stories associated with them, and so I guess my thought was that that was kind of a connection back to some of the things that I had seen or experienced within immersive theater that were scratching at that, you know, or trying to, to do things like that. So uh, the piece is running at Tribeca through May 4th. What are your plans after that? Uh, well, there's a couple different things. Uh, um, we're going to probably have it travel to different places. Um, we, I've been having some conversations with the folks at the Narrative Medicine uh, program at Columbia University, and we've been talking about ways that, whether it's with this project or others, how emergent technology design and storytelling can be woven into narrative medicine. So we've been having some conversations about the possibility of this being installed in some way in a hospital setting. Um, and allowing practitioners and patients and loved ones to go through it. Um, that's exciting to me. Uh, and then we're talking about expanding into a larger show um, and looking at what that might look like. Because uh, this is really kind of a way that I do a lot of workshopping of the concepts that I make. I rapidly prototype them and continue to evolve them. You know, this is an awesome storefront location. Uh, 359 Canal in conjunction with Wall Play, which is a group that has uh, an initiative called On Canal, where they have like 20 some storefronts that they lease out and uh, and then they allow for people to drop into them to do pop-ups or to do installations. And so, um, you know, the hope is that maybe how we're off-site this year at Tribeca, that could lead to more off-site work in coming years. So I know that that's not directly solely related to my project, but it's related to the category, and I think that's important. But uh, the hope is that this will evolve in a number of different ways, as it has kind of magically already. You know, I think uh, I think my dad still 
has some kind of hand in it as it, as it goes. He's still a collaborator, even if he isn't here in the physical form. So. That sounds awesome. So as someone who has been working in the immersive space for quite a while now, what keeps you going, what keeps you motivated? I think the potential of like that we're in this really amazing time where there are no rules and how often do you have a chance to kind of be a part of creating a new potential art form or you know maybe out of in some way some of the great stories of the 21st century will come from these crazy hybrid things and I'm not saying that my story is a great story of the 21st century I'm just saying that people being able to think about these other ways to tell stories. You know, maybe it doesn't have to be a three-act structure. Maybe it doesn't have to be tied to a, a format. Maybe it doesn't have to be tied to, you know, a device or a screen. You know, maybe there are other ways that we can experience worlds. And I think that that is something I'm very excited about because the act of creation, uh, building worlds or building these experiences and really kind of thinking about what it's like for somebody within them I think is very exciting and I think you know the opportunity to kind of do that in a way that allows for infinite possibilities diverse voices making it inclusive being able to do it in a way that isn't dictated by conglomerates or the way that it currently exists in so many other entertainment forms feels like both artistically and, and from an entertainment perspective there's a window of opportunity to do something differently. And in doing that thing differently, um, you know, maybe we can make the work more um, sustainable, we can make the work more ethical, we can make the more work more inclusive. And um, I feel very fortunate to be at a lot alive at this particular moment in time because I think all these things are kind of coming together. Um, and I think the idea of immersion and experience is only going to become more and more important and valuable, um, especially as we start to embrace and technology becomes even more ubiquitous, our ability to kind of connect to others and be able to understand the world around us uh, through embodiment or immersive or the ability to you know walk in somebody else's shoes, I think are going to be really critical because I think we're kind of in an empathy crisis at the moment. And I think that this type of work has the potential to allow, maybe even briefly, allow somebody to see another perspective. And, and maybe, who knows, maybe that's enough to change someone's mind. Yeah, definitely. So for someone out there who's maybe just getting started in this realm, what would your advice be to new immersive creators? Well, I think just experimenting. I think there's so much that can just be done with paper, you know, post-its, paper, index cards, you know, um, and uh, just rapid experimentation. Uh, I think that that's probably a really important part, you know, this idea of being able to, to just test things, break them, fail. Um, that's probably a really important thing. To not get caught up in the technology, don't worry about that. Think about the human experience, you know, really rooted in that, and think about what somebody's going to walk away, you know, feeling. That's probably, I would say, the most important part. Um, and I do that with my students all the time, you know, so that's, uh, that's a critical thing. 
Awesome. So how can people keep track on you, your work, what's going on with where there's smoke? Sure. Um, they can go to uh, smokeproject.co. So that's smokeproject.co. And um, there's some information there. And then also uh, through the Digital Storytelling Lab at digitalstorytellinglab.com. Um, and there's a lot of resources there, um, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, we've done various writings around the prototypes that we've done at the lab, and uh, we'll be sharing a lot of this process of what we're doing around this project, uh, because I think, as I mentioned at the top, it really is about exploring new forms and functions of storytelling, forms being things like the idea that you could use the Internet of Things, or you could use... AI, or you could use VR, AR, um, but all the functions being the important part, you know, uh, being used for healing, being used for learning, being used for uh, organizing or, you know, uh, mobilization, being used for entertainment. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Lance. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Once again, I want to thank Catherine for taking point on this week and indeed to all our guests who are on the show. Uh, you can check everything out in the show notes. I'm not, I'm not going to read everything over again because uh, there's just there's so much going on right now. Um, the back end of the show, the my part of the show. A uh, couple of quick notes. Uh, yes, indeed. Uh, I'm all in on this stuff now. Uh, the day job is uh, a thing of the past. Um, how am I going to survive? Meh. We're, we're winging it. We're figuring out. Uh, there's, there's, uh, there's been some, you know, there's been some good, good socking away of cash. Uh, but, uh, you know, right now the Patreon is the only guaranteed source of income for the projects that we're doing. Uh, and the Patreon doesn't necessarily cover everything. So if you are ever thinking about it, this is a really great time, but we also need people to tell about it, right? So something that a lot of podcasts do all the time is uh, they ask people to uh, rate and review the show, something we haven't really done, right? Welcome to the attention economy. Um, We need that help probably more than ever right now. We need to spread the word. And indeed, that's probably the, the number one thing that we need to have happen just in general for immersive as a whole is we need people to go out and evangelize. We are evangelists for this here, but our voices only carry so far. Help our voices carry further. Rate and review the show share episodes of the podcast. I'm starting to experiment with some of the stuff that lets us share audio clips from the podcast out into uh, out into the, uh, the rest of the world and link it right back. There's some cool tools that are doing that now. Um, this is, um, I, I feel like I'm in a crucible right now. Um, you know, those of you who are in our Slack, if you aren't, come on and join the Slack. Those of you who kind of follow me on Facebook, um, uh, who might be friends of mine, uh, you know, my, my mom went into the hospital this week. Uh, the good news is, is she's like been moved to like recovery. Um, uh, it was, it's heart issues. She's 72. This is not uh, a terrible surprise for people of that age. Uh, but it's still a lot. Indeed, a lot of this past quarter has been about, you know, me bringing my mom down to LA and having her live next to me and, and sort of setting up for the day that this kind of thing might happen. And it took like six weeks. So um, <laughs> there's 
there's uh, even a question as to whether or not, you know, uh, and, and Landon will hear this for the first time. It's like, I may not be able to come to New Orleans uh, because of this. Um, there's there's a lot of just priorities that are being done right now. Um, and it's life happens this way. You know, you plan, you plan, you make your plans. And there's that adage about, you know, you want to make God laugh, show him a plan. I think that's how it goes. I don't know. I don't really remember things right now. Um <laughs> I'm, I'm just doing what I can. Uh, I, I don't, I don't want to conflate all this together. Uh, I'm not asking folks to like, you know, write me a bunch of sympathy notes. Actually, that kind of drives me up the wall. Um, uh, you know, don't, don't get me in my feelings while I'm trying to push through and, and punch through and make things happen. Uh, there's also been a lot of offers from folks like who were saying like, Hey, if there's anything you need and like, trust me, like if I do, I will reach out. I am not afraid of that. Um, and right now I, I mean, the number one thing is, you know, making this more stable. So rate and review the podcast, share episodes, share the work we're doing. Uh, I'm about to get a lot more annoying on social media because, um, this is how we're going to make a lot of noise. There's a lot of work that hasn't been done in the past couple of weeks, um, you know, that I've, I've been behind on and I'm clearing through that. And there's these brand new vistas that are opening up to us, these new opportunities, and we're, we're bringing it home. So there's a bunch of work to be done. I'm excited to get the, into that work. I also got to make sure that my mom's recovery goes well. So uh, I'm, I'm still split between multiple wor- worlds. Um, just know that uh, I want to be here for her and I want to be here for you. And you're about to get my all. Just, I might also be really weird. <laughs> I might be increasingly weird for the next few weeks. Um, and hopefully, you know, by the end of June, into July, you know, when I finally get to go to Galaxy's Edge because I kind of missed registration because a little busy. Uh, when I finally get to do all that, you know, life is an unending crisis. That's what I've learned in my 40 <laughs> years on this planet. And, um, oh, sorry. I didn't tell you I had a cold. Um, but one thing I know for certain is that you just gotta strap the shield on, sharpen the blade, march right into hell. There's no other way but through. And I'm so thankful for all the people who have my back as we go through. Uh, that's Catherine, that's Anthony, it's Kevin, it's Kara. It's so many folks who are jumping in. Um, it's Lonnie. Um, this, is, this is what we do. Um, it's it's the, the team over at Leia, Monica, Matt, Tommy, Naya, Derek, Amber, um, you know, we're, we're building infrastructure. We're pulling things together and scaling up. And the idea at the end of the day is to empower folks to make better work, have that work be found by more people to empower people to find the work that is going to move them and motivate them and give them that strength to get through a world that often just 
doesn't want us to be happy or free or uh, feeling anything but isolated and disconnected from the rest of humanity and that somehow that's just. And I feel that the core of the work is to put that to the lie. And I am so thankful for the people who prove that out to me every day, all the time. And that includes you. So let's do the end credits before I get emotional because I can feel it happening. Uh, music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Our sustaining backers are now Samuel Mustry, whose name I'm hoping pronouncing correctly, Jan Budman, Lonnie Hanson, Ari Herstand, Mark Balthazar, and Sam Kinkin. Thank you all for keeping this going. You can find us at nopersinium.com. You can find us at nopersinium on Twitter and on Facebook. Everything Immersive is the Facebook group. It's so big. The Slack exists, the NoPro Slack. Talk to us about how to join it. It's vibrant. We're gonna, I'm gonna be on it more. This is the number one thing. I'm gonna be on Slack all day long. Wee! I'm um, actually excited about that. Uh, I hope I'm excited about I think I'm excited about that. Pretty sure I'm excited about that. Patreon.com slash no proscenium is how you keep me in cheeseburgers and Star Wars action figures. Okay, no, no, no. Freelancing gigs are for the Star Wars action figures. I gotta, I gotta cut back. Um, but the rent. <laughs> all right. Until next time, I'll see you at the show.